Psalm chapter 63, let's read together in count of three. One, two, three. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand uphold me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so grateful for your words that David wrote many, many years ago. And I just pray, Lord, as we study together what David has written, Lord, I pray that will not just be a knowledge that we embrace, but I pray that it will come alive to us, Lord. And the only one that can turn this concept, this knowledge into an experience is you, Holy Spirit. So we ask that you do that in the midst of us, Lord, because we want to be able to say like David that your steadfast love is better than life. And by, in order to do that, you're the only one who can do that, Lord. So we ask humbly that you do your miraculous supernatural work in our midst. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. All right. Okay, today will be very, very applicative. So if you love, if you love application, today is your day, okay? For the last couple of weeks on the Sermon of Psalm, being really, you know, filled with a lot of concepts, but today will be very, very applicative. Okay, but let me start with a disclaimer. I am highly indebted to Timothy Keller for this sermon, okay? Most of you know that Keller is my gospel Yoda, okay? So I read all his work, I listened to all his sermon, and pretty much you can smell Keller in all of my sermon. But today, today's bit, I'm more indebted to him than usual. Because what happened was, a couple of years ago, I think about five or six years ago, I listened to his sermon on facing what he called the dark night of soul, or what commonly known as spiritual depression, and then he gave few principles that stuck with me until today, okay? And that's what I'm going to share with you about spiritual depression and how we deal with spiritual depression, because that is the focus of our text. And this is the question that the text will be answering for us, okay? How do we praise God when we feel like we are in the wilderness? How do we treasure God in our deepest valley? What do we do when we feel like God is absent from our life? What do we do when we find ourselves extremely thirsty for God? So this text is specifically deal with spiritual depression. But let me be clear. Mental depression and spiritual depression, depression are different. They're not the same. Okay? But they are more connected than we might think they are. And I believe that the cure to spiritual depression will go a long way to help you in your struggle with mental depression. You with me on that? So they're not the same thing, but this, the root of it are similar, okay? Let me share with you my personal story first. It was the third night 
I was in the hospital because of leukemia. And on the third day, my doctor told me during the day that I had to go through chemotherapy with no certainty that I will be cured. No certainty whatsoever. So that night, on the third night, I was very angry with God. Because why? Because I knew my theology. I knew that God is sovereign. I knew that everything that happened to me is not by accident. God allowed that to happen. The problem that I have is not that God is not suffering. The problem that I have is I could not believe that God will allow me to go through that experience. I mean, seriously, God, I'm like, after five years of studying Bible in Dallas, after graduating with a good grade, after dedicating all my life to serve you, the first thing that you're going to welcome me with is leukemia with no chance, with you know, no certainty whatsoever that I will cure out of chemotherapy. So I was angry with God. But at the same time, like what I told you the last couple of weeks, it's okay for you to be angry with God, but there come a time that you got to speak to your situation about who God is. Remember that? And that's what I want to talk to you about today, okay? Because yes, in one sense, that night I was really angry. I was upset with God. I was mad. And then I reminded myself, I preached to my own soul on who God is. Basically, I preached the gospel to myself. And a few hours later, I fell asleep. Okay, and I do not know what happened that night. And the weirdest thing happened when I woke up in the morning. I was no longer angry. I was no longer upset. I was at peace. I have this confidence that no matter what, that God is good and He's control of my life. And I was no longer afraid of chemotherapy, leukemia, nor death. I just have this wonderful confidence that no matter what, that God is enough for me. Okay, and what happened that night? And I believe what happened to me at that time, I do not know what to call it. But today, I know what to call it. That's what happened when you preach the gospel to yourself, okay? And that's what Psalm 63 will tell us, that the dark night of the soul had turned into the bright morning of confidence. What happened? Let me give you the context of Psalm 63 first. This psalm is written by King David, okay? King David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, it sits on the top of a psalm. So what happened is this. Let me tell you the background story. David was on the run from his son, Absalom, who wanted to kill him. Now, this is weird because Absalom was David's favorite son, number one favorite son. But then one day, Absalom committed coup d'etat, and David had to escape Jerusalem and hid in the wilderness for his life. And in that wilderness, David experienced what theologians call the dark night of the soul. Okay? He experienced that he might lose everything that he treasured in life. His favorite son might cost him everything. He might lose his kingship, reputation, and life. And at that time, David cried out to God. David thirsts for God. The word thirst for God means this. David known that God is with him. But at the same time, David feels like the Lord is not with him. Okay, have you ever experienced that moment? If, if you've been Christian for a while, you should. Because that is a very common experience in Christian life where you just feel like you know that the Lord is there, you know that the Lord is omnipresent, but at the same time, you don't feel God. So the question is, what do we do when we face the dark night of the soul? And David will tell us the answers. Very crucial. He says this, In his deepest valley, David did not hide from God, but turned to God. And he turned the dark night of the soul into the bright morning of confidence. You with me that? Okay, so I'm going to separate Psalm 63 into three parts. So only three-point sermon today instead of regular four. It is why do we thirst, how to deal with thirst, and the answer to thirst. Let's look at the first one. Why do we thirst? First one, 
Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Okay. So there's, there's two kinds of thirst. Because let's be clear first. There's two kinds of thirst. First is we are thirsty because we have God-shaped hole in our life. Okay, let me explain. One of the assumptions of modern society is that with the advancements of technology and science, that eventually we do not need God anymore. So basically what this is this that the idea of God was prevalent in the past because there's a lot of unexplainable things that we cannot explain without God. But now with the advancements of technology and science, they found out that they, we are able to explain a lot of the unexplainable, and they said that eventually this will remove God out of the picture. Okay, that's the assumption. Let me ask you a question. Is that true? The question is no. Do you know why? Because in the last decades alone, we have far more new religions than we have in the past. Isn't that interesting? So with the more advancement of technology, we have far more religions than we do decades ago, two decades ago. Why? Here's why. Because there's a thirst inside of our heart that cannot be denied. There's a thirst for God inside of our heart that cannot be denied. And David used this expression. He says this, My soul thirsts for God. My flesh faints for God. What he's saying is this, that his entire being long for God, that his soul needs God like a body needs water in a desert. I don't know if you ever experienced this. I hope you haven't. But let me ask this question. Have you ever been in a situation where your body desperately needs water but cannot find some? Have you ever been in that situation where your body desperately needs water but you cannot find some? I haven't. But I watch movie where it had, okay? And it looks extremely painful. I mean, the character where they, they just desperate for water and they just, their body went crazy, right? What happened? They started hallucinating. They started to see water everywhere. Their body went nuts when it got near, just a little moisture. And you know what they did? They stuck their tongue everywhere, right? Uh, right? They, just, they just want to have that drop of water. Why? Because their body longs for water. And David says this, that the thirst for God is as elemental, as fundamental as body needs for water. You cannot escape that. Why? Why, David, we cannot escape God? And the Bible answers this. The Bible tells us that we are made by God, for God. And until we have God, there will always be a God-shaped hole in our life. Doesn't matter how hard we try to fill it, doesn't matter, it will not be able to fill it because it's a God-shaped hole whole. We are still thirsty. Okay, and I think the perfect example of this is the life of King Solomon. Okay, you guys know King Solomon, right? Now Solomon, this guy is amazing in many ways. Let's look at his life. First of all, he's probably the richest man in the world. Everything in his house is made of gold, including his toilet seat. Okay, you got to be very rich if you have your toilet seat made of gold. Second, he wrote thousands of songs and poems. So this guy is extremely talented. Not only that, but he's also extremely wise. Why? Because he wrote the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. And not only that, but he was romantic. Why? Because he wrote the most romantic book in the Bible called the Song of Solomon. Okay? And not only that, apparently he's also good looking. Now, how many of you realize that this is not fair already? A guy is either smart and romantic or 
good looking. You cannot have a ball, you cannot have a roll. But Solomon have all plus some more. Okay, so Solomon, he was rich, wise, talented, romantic, good looking. He had everything going for him. And he had 1,000 girlfriends at the same time. This dude has everything in his life. He built the most impressive temple in the history of Israel. And then he led Israel in a national revival. Can you and I agree that this man have everything in life that you and I have wanted? He tasted it. But then what Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes is very, very fascinating. You know what he said? Everything that he accomplished is like striving after wind. Now, have you ever tried to catch wind? Try it. You know, you can do it now. What happened? You can try, but you cannot do it. You can never grasp it. You can feel it. You can feel the wind, but you can never grasp it. You can never catch it. And that's the idea that Solomon tried to tell us. That's how he felt about life. Everything that you, you, you feel like you have it, but every day of the day, it's nothing but a wind. Everything was meaningless, according to Solomon. Or in the word of Lincoln Park, he says this, I tried so hard and got so far, but in the end, it doesn't even matter. I'm pretty sure Lincoln Park read the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? They, so, I mean, have you ever realized that depression and suicide rates are highest among the richest, powerful, and most successful people? Isn't that strange? I mean, they have to have everything that we desire, and yet those who have it, says so like everything's like striving after wind. We can feel it, but we can never take hold of it. It cannot satisfy our thirst. No matter what we do, we will always be thirsty without God. Okay, that's the first one. But David, David's thirst is not like that. David's thirst is actually the second thirst. The second thirst is this. We are thirsty because we long for God. So if, if the first reason we thirst is because we do not have God, in the second reason, David is different. David knew God. David has tasted God. David has experienced God. But for whatever different reason, what happened is this. He's at a point where he feels like he's isolated from God. And he longed for God. It might be. Some of you might be in that situation right now, right? It might be because of sickness. It might be because of breakup. It might be because unmet expectation, betrayal, new stage of life, death of a loved one. Like you knew God, but at this time in life right now, you just don't feel like He's there with you. You are experiencing a crisis of someone who knows God. At the same time, you long for God. Okay, and that is a very common Christian experience. You know He's there with you. At the same time, you don't feel Him. Okay, and then what's amazing about David is this, okay? Usually when you're in that situation, when you are amid difficult situation like David, when your own son wanted to kill you, what do you do? You come to God and you ask God to intervene in your situation, right? God, please save me. God, please do this. God, please do A, B, C, D, F, G so that I might have a better life. But not David. What David comes and say to God, he does not say, Lord, I need you to overcome my situation. No. You know what he say? God, I need you. He does not come to God and say, Lord, the least that you can do after everything that I've done for you is to save me from this pit. Save me from my son. Oh, no. What he does is, is he come to God and he says, Lord, I want you. Lord, I am thirsty for you. Lord, my body faints for you. My body needs you like a water, like a body needs water in a desert. David does not lament the fact that his life is in danger. 
he lament the fact that he cannot feel God's presence. Now, here's a question for you and me. What do we do in our wilderness? Do we run from God or do we run to God? Because this is what David said, verse 63, I mean, verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You know what David is saying? Here's what David is saying. David says that knowing God and his love is more satisfying than life. Now, I know for Christian, when I say that, all of you say amen. Okay, that's the Christian thing, right? Of course, God's love is better than amen. But I want you to think about it for a bit, okay? Think about it. Can we agree that life is precious? Can you agree that your life is precious? Do you love your, lo- your own life? I hope so. We believe that our life is precious, okay? Every sane people believe that life is precious, okay? Let me give you an example. Let's say you get monk. So the robber is holding a knife in front of you and say, give me your wallet or you die. What are you going to do? Anyone going to say, over my dead body? Anyone going to say that? No, right? I mean, when the, when the robbers put the knife in front of you and ask you for your wallet, you don't think about, shoot, my wallet's brand is LV today. You don't think about how, you know, you know, how much cash you have in your wallet. You don't think about a blank check that you have in your wallet. It doesn't matter if you have the black credit card with no spending limit. It doesn't matter. You know what you do when the robber asks you for that wallet? Here's what you say. Take whatever you want. My watch, everything you want, take it. Just spare my life. Why? Because all of us, we love our life. We think that our love is precious. But here's what David say, okay? For David, there's something that is more precious for him than life. David said the love of God is better than life. So it means what David is saying is the love of God for David is better than his dream, hobby, family, wealth, health, dog, cat, music, games, hobby, holiday. And they're not a bad thing, but what David says is that they're God's good gift, but when I try to compare it, God's love is far better. God's love is far more precious because God is David's ultimate good. And if God is our highest good, we don't run from God, but we run to God in our wilderness. If we're running from God when life turns sour, it means that something else is better than the steadfast love of God. Let me give you an example from my own life. Good thing my parents are not here. Let's say that your parents always wanted you to do A, but you're not doing it. You're doing B. And you know that your parents are disappointed in you. You can sense it in the way they talk to you. It feels distant and remote. And parents being parents, they always bring up that subject every opportunity they can. They're not happy with you, and you know it. And it's painful. You're grieved by it, and it's very hard. Especially if you grew up in an Eastern culture where parents' approval is extremely important. So you might cry about it for some time. It hurts. That's normal. But here's what's not normal. If you can't get over the fact that you have disappointed your parents, if you continue to remember the hurtful words that they throw at you, if you think that you're, you're nobody because your parents do not approve of you, let me tell you what's, what's happening. It's mean at that time that your parents' approval is better than life. 
So that means at the time, what you desire first and foremost is your parents' approval. So you might say with your word that the love of God is better than life. But the question is, what really grips your heart? What really motivates you? Because the ultimate reason we don't run to God when life turns sour is because we love something else more than God. And this is what wilderness does to us. Wilderness shows to us what we truly love. Okay? And that's the thirst that David experienced. David had that thirst that he longs for God. That there's a situation that he's in right now that makes him feel like, Lord, I know you are with me, but I don't feel you and I long for you. I need you desperately. So then the second question is this. Second point of my sermon, how do we deal with thirst? First two to eight. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wing, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you in your right hand. Uphold me. Now, this is the part where I am highly indebted to Timothy Keller. Okay? He put in words what I did subconsciously on the dark night of my soul. Okay? And we can see it in these verses. What David does, he does four things simultaneously. Okay? There's carrot, but I'm going to try to put it in logical order for you. Basically, what David does is this. David meditates on God's truth. Okay? What does it mean to meditate on God's truth? This is the way Timothy Keller put it. Meditation is taking the truths of the Bible, thinking about them, valuing them, insisting that you think and live and feel through those truths. So basically what Keller says, okay, you might feel a certain way, but when you meditate on God's love, basically this, okay, Lord, I might love something else more than you right now, but now let me call, recall upon your love and then let me hammer it into my mind until finally the things that I love more than you begin to fade and your love begin to shine. Okay, that's the idea of meditation. And the question is, yes, that sounds very complicated, but I'm going to show you to you, it's actually not. Okay, this is something that we do every day on a daily basis. Okay? Preaching the gospel to ourselves is actually very natural for you and me. Okay? There are four things that David does. Okay? There's four ways that we battle the deal with our thirst. First is this, recall. So what David does first is this, David reminds himself who God is. But pay attention to the way David does it, okay? David does not simply say this, God is great. But he gives reason to why God is great. So what David does is this, David goes into detail. So David does not just say, I love God. I mean, I love God, that's good. But then he reminds himself why he loves God. He analyzes it. He breaks it down. And this is crucial. Let me tell you why this is crucial. Because this happens every day in a conversation between husband and wife. Okay? Imagine a conversation between husband and wife. And the husband said to his wife, Babe, I love you. And woman being woman, you know what his wife say? Not I love you back, but she said, why? <laughs> she wanted an explanation. So the husband say, Babe, I love you because you are amazing. And you know what she say? She will not say, I love you back, but she will say, why? Why am I amazing? 
What do you mean when you say that I'm amazing? In what way am I amazing? I mean, it's awesome to know that someone thinks that you're amazing and someone loves you, but it's a lot better to find out why. Am I right, ladies? Can all the ladies like, yeah, yours. See, ladies, let me give you permission. So when you go home tonight, you can ask your husband and your boyfriend, why do you love me? Why? Because that's crucial. Make him think. Because guys do not like to think. But make him think. So make him consider why do I actually love my girlfriend or my wife? Because this is what happened. When you start to understand, I realize, hold on a second. Okay, this is the 10 things I love about you. Do you know what it does to you? It expands your heart and your wife's heart at the same time. Because when you become more, you give description, you become more vivid with the reason, it enlarges the capacity of your heart and her heart at the same time. And that's what we do also with God. When we begin to get more specific, it helps us to see God clearer. Okay, that's what we do all the time. But the second time, the second, the second way is this. The second thing that David does is this, valuation. So after David lists out the truth about God, David began to think the implication of the truth. Okay? That means this. This step requires us to think and compare. See, when we make a valuation of a house, do you know what you do? You compare it with other houses. Correct? Here's what David says. You got to do think and comparison. First two and three. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now remember the context. So David was on a run for his life. His own son wanted to kill him. And in the middle of that, in the middle of that wilderness, he, did, he does this. He did a valuation. He reminded himself who God is and God's power and glory that he has seen in the temple. And he reminded the fact that God's steadfast love is for him. And then he compared it to his current situation. And he concludes, when he makes the comparison, he concludes that God's steadfast love is better than life. So that, what, what it means is David doesn't simply say, God loved me, but David also asked the question, he takes it another step further. If God is so great in power and glory, and if I have seen His greatness for myself, and if this great God loved me with His steadfast love, then the question will be, why am I afraid? Why do I worry about my life? Because to have the, God, the, the love of this glorious God is far better than life. So then why should I be afraid of losing my life? Okay, now some of you are like, yes, this is so complicated. It is not. We do this every single day in life. Let me give you an example. Let's say my dad give me a watch, okay? The brand start with R and end with X and have the manager of Manchester United name written in between. Apparently, my dad inherited this watch from his dad. And my dad's got it from his dad's dad, okay? And now the watch is in my possession, okay? And the watch looks okay, okay? It looks very old, so I never wear it, and I put it in my shelf. Then one day, one of you come to my house, okay? One of you come to my house, and you see the watch, and you go crazy. You start yelling and screaming around my house like a madman, and you rush to me, and you say, yosh, 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 ochi, ochi, ochi. Do you know what this is? I look at the watch, and to my eyes, it looks just like an ordinary old-fashioned watch. But for someone who loves watches, 
that watch holds tremendous value. And then you begin to tell me, okay, the value of the Rolex that I have on my head, okay? You say this, this is the very first Rolex ever invented. It has the serial number one. At that time, I'm still clueless because I don't understand watch. And then you continue. This watch worth a few million dollars. Now I go crazy. Talk watch, I don't understand. Talk money, I get it. <laughs> but the moment you tell me the value of this watch, you know what happened? Here's what happened. I'm not going to just put my watch back on the shelf and pretend as if nothing happened. Oh, I cannot. Because the moment I find out the value of that watch, you know what I, have, what I do? I immediately think and start to consider and make comparison. What does it mean for me to have this watch in my life? I begin to think very completely different now because that watch changes my life. I am now a rich man. I don't have to worry about how to pay for my mortgage. I don't have to worry about recession. I have a few million dollar watch. I mean, do you see what happened? By the way, this is just an illustration because last time I gave this illustration, some people come up to me, so you have Rolex watch, hey? Okay, I don't. If I have Rolex watch, I will not tell you guys from the sermon. Here's what David tried to say. It's not enough for us to know the truths about God. See, we've got to think out the implication of knowing the truths about God. So don't just say to yourself, all right, God loved me. But you've got to think, if God loved me, then why am I afraid? So don't just say God is wise, but think, if God is wise, then why am I frustrated about things not working out according to my expectation? Because He's no better than me. So don't just say that God forgive you of your sin, but think, if God has forgiven me, why do I still feel guilty about my past? Why do I still think lowly of myself when it costs God everything to forgive me? See, this is what it means to do valuation. And when we do this, we begin to see things in different perspective. We begin to realize we're not as upset anymore about losing a career. We're not as upset anymore about losing a relationship. Why? Because you and I begin to think and make the comparison and realize we have something far greater and more important. Okay? And that's what valuation does to you. I mean, do you see how life-changing this is? I know this is very simple. But if we have the discipline to do that, it's radically transformed the way we feel life. But the third, not enough with valuation. The third thing that David does is this, praise. And David does it all the time throughout the psalm. He says this, my lips will praise you. In your name, I lift up my hands. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I will sing for joy. This might sound very straightforward for us, but it's extremely crucial. C.S. Lewis, when he was a new Christian, he had problem with the fact that God constantly commands us to praise him. Because it embarrassed him as a young Christian because he's like, why was God always asking for compliments? Was God that conceited? And throughout the book of Psalm, if, if you realize, God continued to command us to praise him, Right? So God continued to seek our praise, and it does not make any sense for Lewis at the time. Because just think about it. Imagine a husband go to his wife saying, hey, babe, I have written something for you for our wedding anniversary. I have written 150 songs that talk about how awesome I am. I want to give them to you as a gift so that you can pull them up every night and read them to me every night before you to go, go to bed and every morning when you wake up. And doing that will make you feel 
good about yourself and realize how great I am. You know what every wife will say? Look, gila. Me chin. Xin chin ping. Crazy la. Why? Because no one is worthy of that. You can't do that. But that's exactly what God is commanding us through the book of Psalms. So in the book of Psalms, we find 150 songs about God that God tells us, I want you to sing those songs to me. But here's what Lewis eventually understands. Okay, he writes this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is a pointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. So what Lewis is saying is simply this, okay? When God commanded us to praise Him, what God wants us, He wants us to complete our joy. It is an invitation for, God, for us to complete our joy in God. Because we know this, we do this naturally. Whenever you and I enjoy something, it is never enough for us to enjoy it for our own. Never enough. We have to tell other people about it. So when we find a new delicious restaurant, what we do, we, it's not enough for us to enjoy the food. The next thing that we do, we post it on our Instagram for our followers to see. It does not matter if we only have three followers, your dad, your mom, and your brother, but you still post it. Because you want to tell someone that this place is freaking good. Why? Why do we need to do that? Because praise is not only the expression of joy, it's the completion of joy. Your joy is not complete until you praise it. Okay? And this is the reason why I love to listen to a lot of sermons. Okay, if you know me, you know that I'm a sermon junkie. I listen to gospel-centered sermon all the time, on my car, on my work, every time. I love to listen how different preachers from different races preach the gospel. Why? It's not because I always learn something new from the sermon, okay? I think out of 10 sermons, I only learn something new in one of them. So why do I listen to the other nine? Let me tell you why. Because I love to hear different preachers of the gospel express the gospel that I already know in different ways that I cannot. I mean, I praise God for them. Like, I love listening to African-American preach the gospel. I love it. I mean, they just have this beautiful, I don't know what you call it. Like, you know, they just have their way. I'm not going to even try, okay? If I try, this just be empty next week. But I love it. I mean, they can express the gospel in a way that I cannot, even though they're saying the same thing as I do. But I just, I just love listening to it. Why? Because my enjoyment of the gospel is not only in knowing the gospel, but also to hear the gospel being expressed. And this is what Lewis is getting at. We cannot enjoy God by simply feeling good about God on the inside. Oh no. We must express it. We must praise God to complete our joy in God. So that's the third thing that we must do. Praise God. And the fourth the fourth thing is to behold. Now, the word behold is a very archaic language. Okay? We don't use it anymore today, but it's a very important one in the Bible. Because the word behold does not simply mean seeing. It is more than seeing. It is more than looking. It is savoring. Okay? It is a, very, it's a sensory language. Okay? It's like this. 
you look at a light bulb, but you don't look at sunset. You behold sunset. See, behold is a kind of looking that changes you, that radically transforms you on the spot. So that's why David used this word in his psalm, I behold your power and glory. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. In other words, what David says is, I not only know about your love, God, but I have tasted your love. Your love is like fat and rich food. My soul will be satisfied. And I don't just know about your power and glory. I have beheld it. This is where concept turns into experience. There's a big, big difference, my friend, between knowing that God is good and tasting that God is good. Now, if you've been in RSF for a while, then you know this, okay? You know this. I'm sure you have heard me speak of Elu fried rice. It is legendary. You know of it. You have heard of how delicious it is but you have no idea how it is. Only I do. All those knowing about how amazing Elu fried rice is cannot be compared to the moment that you take that spoonful of her fried rice and have a glimpse of heaven invade your mouth. You cannot compare the two. And this is what David is saying. There's a big difference between knowing that God is good, have intellectual understanding that God is good, and actually tasting His love in our heart. And this, my friend, what differentiates between religious Christian and gospel Christian. Because gospel Christian understand this, that they have tasted the sweetness of God's love and they want more of it. They want more of it. They cannot get enough of it. They desire it more than life. They love God for God. And that's why in verse 8, David said, My soul clings to you, your right hand. I'd hoped me. So in the middle of wilderness, in the middle of his son wanted to kill him, what David says is, I cannot let go of you, God. My, my soul clings to you. My soul cleaves to you. Yet at the same time, David does not make the mistake thinking that it is all about his effort to cling to God. Because the very next breath, he said, what? Your right hand uphold me. So the only reason that David can cling to God is because all this time, God's been upholding David with his right hand. Can, and let me be straight with you. The first three, recall, valuation, and praise, they are under our control. We can do it. But the fourth one, behold, to taste the sweetness of God is out of our control. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can turn the knowledge into experience. But what we can do is position ourselves under the tap of the gospel. What you and I can do is we do that by recalling, evaluating, and praising. And as we do that, we position ourselves to be washed by the gospel when God eventually turns on the tap. And He will. We have the confidence that God will not fail to turn on the tap. How? Look at the third one. The answer to the thirst. First 9 to verse 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depth of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. So David closes the psalm with confidence that no matter what, God will vindicate him. 
He's confident that God will turn things around and defeat his enemy decisively, and he will rejoice in God with all of God's people. It's mean that God will not only satisfy your soul, my soul, but God will not fail to take care of you and me. It does not mean that the, the road ahead are smooth, no. But it means that God will safeguard us from the soul of our enemy, and we will make it to the glorious future with Him. He will not fail. But the question is this, okay? David, how on earth can you have the confidence that God will not fail you? How can you have the confidence that God will satisfy you? Okay, because this is something that we must have. If we do not have this, this is not going to work. And what is that? First three. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. The key lies in two words, okay? The word is steadfast love. Now, throughout our sermon on the book of, Sir, on the book of Psalm, you encounter this word again and again. Okay, this word steadfast life is repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. Okay, what does it mean for God to have steadfast love? Okay, let me teach you the Hebrew word. Okay, the Hebrew word is this, keset. Can you repeat that after me? Keset. Okay, do it, do it more convincingly. Keset. Keset. Okay, you got to emphasize on the k. Okay, otherwise it means totally something, totally very different. It's not God's keset. No, no, keset. Okay, the word keset, it means this. It is a word that is used to describe God's love for His people. It means the loyal, unmovable, unconditional, unchangeable, perfect love of God. It is the love that remains unshaken and when everything else is shaken. Or if I can sum up in other words, is this. There's another two words that describes steadfast love. Is this covenant love. Here's why it's important. Because I live one piece of information that is very crucial for us to understand this text, okay? When Absalom rebelled against David, you know what? David was not surprised. So when Absalom wanted to kill David, David was not surprised. He knew it all along. David knew this day was coming for him. Why? Because many years earlier, when the prophet Nathan came and rebuked David for his sin of adultery and murder, which we talked about last week, David repented. And yes, God forgive David of all David's sin. And that's beautiful. But Nathan also said this word to David at that time. Nathan told David that the sword will not depart from your family. With another word, what Nathan says, yes, God forgive you of all your sin, but you got to pay the consequence of your sin. So David knew that one day, one day a sword will come for him out of his own family. David understand that. So that's why when Absalom rebelled against him, David was not surprised. David had sown the seed of bitterness and distrust on his own family. David failed as a king. David failed as a father. He failed in every way. And yet despite all his failure, he has the confidence to say, your steadfast love, God, will not fail me. He has the confidence to say that, God, your covenant love will satisfy me. How? Because David understands something about God's love. It is not not based on David's performance. It is not not based on David's condition. When God 
promise to love David. God's love is loyal, unmovable, unconditional, unchangeable, is perfect. That is steadfast love. Now listen, and I conclude with this. If this is true for David, if David can look at God's steadfast love and have confidence that God loved him in spite of his sin, how much more true is this for you and me? Because today, you and I can know that we can have God's steadfast love in spite of our sin. How? Because we have a totally different king who are so much better than David. And yet, this king, he was sent into the wilderness. This king was driven into the wilderness, but he was not driven not because of his sin. He was driven not because of our sin. And this king rejoiced in God, loved God, praised God with all of his being. Yet instead of receiving kindness from God, he received the wrath of God. He was abandoned by God at the cross. That's why Jesus was crucified. And you know what Jesus said at the cross? He said this very, very word, I thirst. Why on earth the Son of God who lived a perfect life would say at the cross, I thirst? Because God, Jesus, received the abandonment that you and I should receive. Jesus received the thirst, the eternal longing thirst that you and I have. So that when you and I put your faith in Him, what we have is no longer thirst. What we have is the confidence that God's steadfast love is for us. And that's what happened. And my friend, and that is how you and I today can have the confidence that no matter what, no matter what, that God's steadfast love is for us. It is when we see God's love manifested for us at the cross of Jesus Christ that we are drenched in the waterfall of the gospel. This is what turns experience, knowledge into experience. And this is the only way that God not only becomes useful to you, but beautiful. This is what melts our heart and satisfies our thirst. The steadfast love of God becomes personal in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Let me close with this. Are you thirsty for God today? I mean, you might find yourself in a spiritual desert right now. My encouragement for you is this. Don't despise it. Because it is in the middle of the desert that we understand the preciousness of water. It is in the desert that we find God's steadfast love to be richly satisfying. So if you find yourself longing for God, but you cannot feel God's presence, here's my encouragement. Go home tonight and meditate on God's truth. Recall, value it, and praise. And as you do that, I am convinced that God will open your eyes to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And He will satisfy your thirst. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so grateful that your love for us is a covenant love. It's Kesat, Lord. It's a love that goes beyond our performances. It's a love that goes beyond our circumstances. It's a love that is unmovable, unchangeable. And it is that love, Lord, that propels us to continue to seek You, even, even when we find ourselves in the middle of a desert. 
It is that love that continues to propel us to continue to run hard after you, even in the midst of our wilderness. So I pray, Lord, that you continue to help us, Lord. Continue to help us recall your love, to evaluate your love, and to praise you for your love. And as we do that, I pray, Lord, that you open our eyes to behold your glory, to behold the glory of the gospel in your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray when we see Jesus die at the cross for us, I pray that it, that will turn concept into experience that will satisfy artists. So we ask this in the name of beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray.